Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. here. With the new year, there are more than a few things to see in the night skies of January. Constellations, a meteor shower, and a lunar eclipse top the list. So I steel myself against the colder temperatures and take a walk outside shortly after dark. Since we are only a couple of weeks following the date of the shortest amount of daylight, the winter solstice back on December 21st, darkness comes early at this time of the year. The colder temperatures can also help remove some of the moisture from the air, making the stars seem to pop against the blackness of the night sky. Scanning the sky, I can quickly find one of my favorite targets, the Big Dipper. The Big Dipper is not a constellation, but is made of seven of the brightest stars in a larger constellation called Ursa Major, Latin for the Big Bear. Unfortunately, About the only part of the dipper that can be easy to spot are the two stars that make up the front of the bowl of the dipper, at least in the early evening skies. But that still works because these two stars allow me to find the north star, Polaris, to establish the direction north. That then lets me know the directions of the night sky. Start with the star closest to the horizon and draw a line from it to the star marking the tip of the front of the bowl of the dipper. Extend that line until another star is reached. This is Polaris, a star that does not seem to move throughout the night or throughout the year. Here at my house, the skies are dark enough to see a dim group of stars curving back down toward the direction of the horizon and the bowl of the Big Dipper. Seven stars in all, including Polaris, make up the Little Dipper. Unless the skies are quite dark, that is, not too light polluted, It may only be possible to pick up Polaris and the two stars that make up the front of the bowl of the Little Dipper. This makes a good gauge for testing the darkness of the skies. West, south, and east are generally the location of planets in the night sky. This past fall, there were more than a few. Now, only one is found in our early evening sky, the planet Mars. Located high up in the southwestern sky, it is the brightest object in that part of the sky, making it pretty easy to pick up. The moon will lie south of it on the 12th, confirming the find. In the southeast, an easily found pattern of stars can be seen. The bright pattern of Orion the Hunter is well above the horizon in the evening skies of January. Throughout the rest of winter and on into the spring, he will be seen to march across the southern sky before disappearing altogether later in the spring. What stands out most for many people is the line of three stars. 
Each are quite bright, and a line of stars close together is something not easily visible in the sky. These three stars are a belt worn at the waist of Orion. A dimmer line of stars just south of the belt mark a sword tucked there. 10 by 50 binoculars or a small telescope will reveal that the middle star is a gas cloud called the Orion Nebula. Here, new stars are forming, and their output causes the surrounding gas to glow like a neon sign. To finish up Orion, two bright stars north of the belt mark his shoulders. Two bright stars south of the belt mark his knees. In the dark skies here, a small grouping of three stars midway and up from the shoulders mark his head. Collectively, not too difficult to see a human figure there among those stars. Another reason I like to find Orion is that, like the Big Dipper, combinations of stars in Orion lead to other stars in other constellations. This is particularly true about the belt stars. A line extended beyond the belt stars up into the west lead to Aldebaran. This star is the brightest in a constellation known as Taurus the Bull. Taurus is another constellation that is somewhat easy to picture, at least as far as his face and head. Aldebaran is pictured as one of his eyes. Nearer to Aldebaran can be seen a V-shaped group of stars with Aldebaran at one end of one of the arms of the V. The V-shaped pattern is a cluster of stars traveling together in space called the Hyades Star Cluster. Aldebaran happens to lie along the line toward that cluster but isn't part of it. Aldebaran is closer to Earth, so this gives sort of a 3D effect with a little imagination. A bit west of the Hyades is a tighter grouping of stars called the Pleiades. They are also traveling together as a group in our galaxy and are farther from us than the Hyades, further allowing that 3D imagination thing to work. They also mark the shoulder of Taurus. If the line of stars marking each arm of the V-shaped Hyades is extended, two more relatively bright stars are reached, marking the tip of the horns of Taurus. So basically, we see the front half of a bull. As prominent as Orion and Taurus are, and located next to each other in the sky, the ancient Greeks and Romans did not seem to create a story involving both. It would seem quite natural, one being a hunter and the other the hunted. Maybe a task for a modern storyteller. By now, enough time may have passed to put the belt stars back to work to find another bright star. Traveling southeast along the belt stars, we arrive at Sirius, the brightest star in our skies. Sirius is also the brightest star in Canis Major, Latin for the Big Dog. To see more of this constellation requires a bit later stay in the night skies, or perhaps a revisit later in the evening after heading in to warm up. The shoulder stars of Orion can also be used to find a bright star. A line from the dimmer Bellatrex to the brighter Betelgeuse, continuing eastward, leads to Procyon. Procyon is the brightest star of a small constellation known as Canis Minor, the small dog. By small, I mean this star and one other, somewhat dimmer star, for the most part make up this constellation. Farther over in the eastern sky are a pair of stars of about the same brightness. These are the stars Castor and Pollux. They make up the heads of the brothers collectively called Gemini the Twins. Castor and Pollux are not only the name of the stars, but the names of each of the twins. A line of stars stretching back in the direction of Orion mark their bodies. A good star map may help with this. Early in January, under dark skies, some streaks of light might be seen. Another meteor shower peaks in early January. 
Known as the Quadrantid Meteor Shower, it peaks overnight from the evening of January 3rd to the early morning skies of January 4th, producing on average about 40 or so meteors under dark skies near that peak. It is considered a moderate meteor shower. The radiant point, the location where the meteors seem to originate, will rise in the northeast. It is in the part of the sky near the end of the handle of the Big Dipper. So the radiant point will rise about an hour or so after the handle of the Big Dipper has had a chance to clear the horizon. But to see these meteors, you might best be facing east, south, and west. Finally, on January 21st, there will be a total eclipse of the moon. Lunar eclipses are gradual events. Initially, when the moon enters the outer shadow of the Earth, in this case about 9.30 p.m. on January 20th, there might not be much to notice. But when the moon reaches the inner shadow of the Earth, about an hour later, a dark patch will begin to engulf the moon, making it appear as if it is being eaten. The moon should be inside the inner shadow of the Earth by about 11.41 p.m., and will move through the dark shadow of the Earth for about an hour. Mid-eclipse will be at 12.13 in the morning on the 21st. After that, it will re-emerge, being completely free of the outer shadow by around 2.48 a.m. the morning of the 21st. Constellations, shooting stars, and a lunar eclipse, all visible to the unaided eye. And the only precaution would be to dress for the weather. Could be lots of fun. You're currently listening to Bench Talk, the weekend science at WFMP 106.5 here in Louisville, Kentucky. Oh, thanks a lot, Scott. Dave here, and just wanted to let you know that we are hoping to feature Professor Scott Miller on this show, Bench Talk the Week in Science, on a regular basis in 2019. Basically, he'll be telling you about the night sky every month of the year. And when we do that, we're planning on featuring his interstellar forays at the beginning of each show. So if you want to, you could take your radio or your podcasting device out into your backyard with you as you try to see all of these wondrous features of the night sky that Scott is describing. Try it sometime. I think that's truly the best way to experience the night sky. Well, looking up at the sky with the naked eye is certainly one important way of observing the cosmos around us. Another way is by using telescopes, of course. And a third way to explore the world outside of our planet is directly by using a spacecraft of some kind. You could do this by sending people to outer space on some sort of a spaceship, or by sending an unoccupied probe or a robot out there in our steed. 2019 looks to be a very exciting year for spaceflight, and I would like to take a few minutes today to tell you a little bit about what is supposed to happen in spaceflight this year. 
Of course, these events I want to tell you about today could be canceled or postponed in the future. Kind of depends on funding, the weather, political influences, technical problems, things like that. But let's have a look at what is supposed to happen in spaceflight this year. Well, first of all, there's this NASA probe called New Horizons, which was launched from Cape Canaveral back in 2006, 12 years ago. It had a brief encounter with an asteroid, and then New Horizons did a flyby of Jupiter in 2007. At that time, it collected a lot of data about Jupiter, but it also used that big planet Jupiter as a gravity assist where it could pick up speed by using the gravity of the planet as sort of a slingshot to push it out further from the sun. Now this nuclear-powered robot called New Horizons then completed its exploration of Pluto in 2015-16 and then it was sent off even further to explore a huge asteroid belt on the very outskirts of our solar system. This asteroid belt is known as the Kuiper Belt In August of 2018, the New Horizons probe hit what's called the Hydrogen Wall. The Hydrogen Wall was first detected by the Voyager spacecraft back in 1992. And the Hydrogen Wall basically represents the edge of the heliosphere. The heliosphere is this bubble-like region of space that surrounds and is actually created by our sun. So what this means is that the New Horizons probe is at the very edge of our solar system. Now one of the biggest asteroids in the Kuiper belt is called Ultima Thule. And Ultima Thule is a peanut-shaped rock. It's about 20 miles long, 4 billion miles from Earth. It's the most distant object ever visited by humans, or at least one of our probes. New Horizons is supposed to reach its closest point with Ultima Thule on December 31st, 2018, New Year's Eve, which is pretty cool. It's going to take photos and gather physical data about the asteroid, and then it's just going to continue on its way outside of our solar system. So New Horizons is out there doing its thing. And then on January 3rd, 2019, China will be making a landing on the dark side of the moon. It's going to launch a rover from their landing craft that's going to rove around the surface of the moon to study its chemistry and the moon's geology. This rover is essentially the backup rover for one called Jade Rabbit, which the Chinese landed on the moon about five years ago. One of the neat things that the Chinese are doing on this landing craft on the moon is to build the first biological ecosystem on the moon. Basically, it's this 7-inch long aluminum tube. It contains seeds of two species of plant. It's potatoes and Arabidopsis. And these seeds are going to germinate on the moon inside this tube. And also inside that tube are silkworm eggs. And these silkworm eggs are supposed to hatch on the moon. And while the plants are synthesizing oxygen for the silkworm larvae, The silkworms themselves will be respiring, providing the carbon dioxide. So there'll be an ecosystem of gas exchange, the animals producing carbon dioxide and absorbing oxygen, and the plants absorbing the carbon dioxide and producing the oxygen. The first ecosystem on the moon. I have to admit, when I first heard this, I thought, oh, this is all being done on the dark side of the moon? There's no sunlight on the dark side of the moon. But, of course, I realized that when they talk about the dark side of the moon, they really mean the far side of the moon. That's the side of the moon that we don't see. 
So when we see the full moon, sure enough, the far side of the moon is the dark side of the moon. But if you're seeing the gibbous moon or the first or last quarter of the moon or the crescent or the new moon, that means part of the sunlight is hitting the back of the moon that we don't actually see. And that's when they'll be growing their plants. Now, this is not the only effort to go to the moon this year. In late 2019, China should be launching another moon lander that's going to go to the moon and collect five pounds of lunar soil and return it to the Earth. Well, to tell you about some other plans for the year, in the spring of 2019, SpaceX, which is the aerospace company founded by Elon Musk, who's the co-founder of the Tesla car company and PayPal, is going to test launch its new spaceship called Crew Dragon. SpaceX will be launching Crew Dragon from Cape Canaveral in the spring, and the idea is that this unmanned vehicle is going to dock with the International Space Station soon after the launch. If successful, they plan to have two more flights of Crew Dragon this year, and they'll actually have people on board. They'll have astronauts. The first one is slated to be in June of this year. They've already selected the two men to go on this flight. They're both experienced astronauts. But that's not the only private company trying to go into space. There's the Boeing company, too. They're also working on a spacecraft that can replace the space shuttle. The Boeing spaceship is called CST-100 Starline. The Starline looks a lot like a more modern version of the old Apollo spacecraft from the 1960s and 70s. It's going to be able to hold seven people, and that's true for the SpaceX craft, too. The maiden voyage of the Starline will probably be sometime this year, too. It was supposed to go up in 2018, actually, but it didn't because it had a leaky valve problem. Now, the goal of both of these programs is to eventually replace NASA's space shuttle system that you might remember. The space shuttles were retired in 2011. Since then, NASA has been purchasing space on Russian rockets. It's called Soyuz. But the costs for that have been skyrocketing lately. It currently costs something like $80 million per person per flight to use a Soyuz rocket. Plus, there seems to be problems with the Soyuz system. For instance, the aborted launch of October 11, 2018. The Soyuz had launched for two minutes. It was many miles from Earth. It was going 3,000 miles an hour. And some booster rockets collided. And then they had to abort the whole launch. And then there's this question of a hole that they've discovered in the Soyuz capsule that's now part of the International Space Station. It looks like someone drilled the hole from the inside. So it makes you wonder what is going on with the Soyuz program. NASA was supposed to have a viable replacement for the shuttle in 2015, but due to poor funding by Congress, it is behind schedule. So basically, NASA is attaining federal money to give to SpaceX and Boeing to develop and launch these new spacecraft. So altogether, I think NASA, which of course means taxpayers, have granted something like $8 billion to SpaceX, Boeing, and two other companies to try to replace the shuttle. Now, SpaceX is dabbling with rockets in a couple other ways, too. In addition to the Crew Dragon ship to replace the shuttle, SpaceX is in the process of building two prototypes of another space vehicle called Starship. This is the spaceship that Elon Musk wants to use to send people to Mars. This is a very long vehicle. It can hold up to 100 people on the Starship. They hope to launch some sort of short flights from their launch pad in Texas sometime late in 2019. 
These preliminary flights of the Starship would go up to about 16,000 feet and last six minutes, and they will be unmanned. But if successful, Musk has already announced that Starship would be used in the year 2023 to take a Japanese billionaire and a group of artists on a trip around the moon. Amazing. Now, China doesn't plan to be left behind in the race to get people into space. They've already developed their own space vehicles for people, too. And they plan on launching some test flights. First, they'll be unmanned sometime this summer. Their ships look an awful lot like the spacecraft that NASA used to send people to the moon back in the 60s and 70s. Now, any internet or cell phone users might be interested in this other space initiative that's being launched by Elon Musk. It's called Starlink, and Starlink will be a series of 12,000 different satellites sent into orbit around the Earth, and these satellites are designed to provide internet service to the entire planet. This internet service will be faster, cheaper, and more dependable than what we have now. Or at least that's the idea. Another advantage of Starlink is that it could allow lower income countries and rural areas to have better access to the internet. But on the other hand, this capability will be in private hands, so you really don't know how all that will come out. Also, the Pentagon is a little worried about this because this is going to be adding satellites to the already half a million pieces of space junk that are orbiting the Earth right now. They have to keep track of all this junk, all this stuff that's out there, and now this is 12,000 more satellites that they're going to have to keep track of. The FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, approved the Starlink plan back in November of 2018 and this global internet service is supposed to be fully operational in the year 2024. It appears that Starlink may be behind schedule, though, because there's a story that Elon Musk recently fired a number of the managers because he was frustrated with how slowly the program was progressing. Now, the thing is, Starlink is not the only company planning to set up this global internet service. There's other companies, too. There's some American companies, and then there's a British company called OneWeb. OneWeb is racing to establish a global internet service as quickly as it can. OneWeb is supposed to launch 10 little satellites this spring, and then another 10 satellites in August of this year. So they are moving ahead. In March or April of this year, Israel should be landing a spacecraft on the moon. The lunar lander will be launched in February by piggybacking on a SpaceX rocket and then slowly make its way to the moon. It's called Space IL for Israel. Space IL will be the first private entity to actually land on the moon. It will make Israel the fourth nation to make a lunar landing, the others being the United States, the Soviet Union, and China. The fifth country to safely land on the moon will be India. They're planning to launch their own lunar lander and rover in February of 2019. Meanwhile, there's that space probe called Juno. Juno was first put into orbit around Jupiter by NASA in 2016, and Juno is expected to fly by Jupiter seven more times this year, taking more photos and gathering more data about this, the largest planet in the solar system, Jupiter. Now, Juno is only the second satellite to be studying Jupiter in detail. The first one was called Galileo. And the neat thing about Juno is that it's being powered by solar energy instead of nuclear energy like Galileo was. It has these three big solar panels. Each panel is 9 by 30 feet in size, and it's collecting enough solar energy from our sun to keep it powered up. 
Now NASA's Parker Solar Probe is going to be continuing to work this year. It's going to make two more passes of the sun. The Parker Solar Probe has already whizzed by the sun once in 2018. And by the way, when it did that, it broke the record as the fastest human-made object known. 120 miles a second. That's pretty fast. The Parker Solar Probe will be studying the sun's corona and the solar wind. And also, as an additional benefit, it's going to be photographing Venus. And while all this cool stuff is going on, don't forget the InSight robot that NASA landed on Mars in November of 2018. I was lucky enough to watch the landing live, and I can tell you that it was really an emotional event. This craft is now sitting on a very flat, dirty plane of Mars. It landed very close to the Martian equator. They picked this spot on purpose because they didn't want a lot of mountains or valleys. They also didn't want to have a lot of rocks around. They just wanted a flat plain. One of the reasons for that is they're planning to drill into the ground 16 feet down from the Mars surface. They want to do that to measure the planet's temperature. Experts suggest that the inner temperature of Mars is cooler than the Earth's temperature, but they want to measure that and find out. NASA also wants to measure the seismic activity of Mars, caused by either the impacts of meteorites on the planet or by the movement of tectonic plates causing quakes. Mars quakes are like our earthquakes, and InSight will measure the number of quakes, how big they are, how often they occur, and where on the planet they're occurring. It's going to be able to measure seismic activity because InSight has this sophisticated equipment on board that eliminates the effect of wind and dust storms and things like that. Now, our moon also has quakes, and the suspicion is that Mars quakes will be somewhat between the kind of quakes we have on Earth and the kind of quakes you find on the moon in terms of being due to tectonic activity. Eventually, the seismic data they collect might reveal more about volcanic activity on Mars, too, or the possibility of liquid water occurring beneath the surface of Mars. Another thing the InSight robot will be doing on Mars is keeping track of the North Pole of that planet. They want to measure how much the North Pole wobbles due to the pull of the Sun during the year. Now, here on Earth, it takes 18 years to complete one wobble, but it's thought that it's going to be quicker on Mars. So this might reveal things about the iron-rich inner core of the planet, like how massive it is, or whether it's more of a liquid or is it more of a solid core, for instance. Now, data collection by the InSight robot won't even begin until the end of January of this year, and the duration of the mission is two years. So it's going to take a while for us to start hearing conclusive results from all this data collecting. So, wow, there's a lot of big things going on in space exploration in 2019. Bench Talk will try to keep you apprised of any significant changes, but keep your eyes on the sky. There's things happening up there. Thank you. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, 
So just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.